that's incumbent upon leadership at the highest level. And that that actually brought the call, take full circle, brought the call for authentic leadership. Welcome to the With Sayada podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Belonging and Understanding. The podcast that brings to you stories of lived experience that you might not otherwise encounter. This is a podcast that encourages you to cultivate belonging and understand others. I'm your host, author and coach Sayada Zaidi, and every episode I'll be asking a new guest to share their story. Dr. Michael Horowitz applies his extensive education and training, along with 45 years of experience as a former practicing certified public accountant. He is a business owner with 25 years as a real estate broker, which has given him the toolbox of skills and expertise to support his clients and help them grow personally and professionally. Um, Michael Horowitz, it's such a pleasure to be speaking with you and I'm looking at your or one of your several websites and it's really like fascinating for me because it calls you chief inspection officer and I know you I I think of you as a friend of mine but when I think of chief inspection officer I'm kind of like man that's such a scary title (laughs) And and it goes on to say that, you know, you're um, a significant trainer for Keller Williams and you did a lot of work in their Palm Beach County um, um, kind of area as well. You've got multiple certificates in coaching and leadership development and training. And I think the thing for me that really connected me with you was the way that as I'm going through my own doctoral journey and you've just completed yours, I think of you as one of my cheerleaders. And for that, I'm just eternally grateful. So it's with great pleasure that I can now call you Dr. Michael. So welcome, Dr. Michael. Well, Saida, thank you so much. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, one quick uh, um, adjustment to that. It should call me Chief Inspiration Officer because that's really my title is uh, to, to leave the agents and the people that I work with touched, moved and inspired, help them uh, go figure out what's important to them. And um, yeah, I, I, my role is, uh, is I guess broad and, and, and deep in the 45 years that I've been doing the kind of stuff that I do, uh, really focused very heavily in the last 10 or 11 years on my academic career and uh, my master's in leadership, and um, now my uh, my doctorate in being Dr. Horowitz and uh, coming up with something that um, I think at the end of the day provides the model for me to do some cool stuff and uh, impact the world of leadership a little bit, and especially as it relates to um, independent contractors, what we call gig mm-hmm. employees, um, you know, uh, whatever that term morphs into being more of how do we lead people who don't get a regular paycheck and Mm. because that means you got to connect head and heart um you know we know uh that uh, you know the whole motivation theory says that you know pay is not a motivator it's a hygiene factor right you gotta have pay to keep people from not being dissatisfied 
but pay doesn't satisfy people in and of itself. So my work really kind of correlates to that. So, mm-hmm. And I'm excited to, to be here with you, you know, and, and watch your part of the journey and, and be, uh, and see what you're doing. It's really cool. You know, you. I love the movement. I love the, the center for belonging, you know, um, Thank you. I serve. I serve on a DEI committee, mm-hmm. and um, the more I serve on it, the more I, I come to recognize that uh, you know what you've said is that it actually causes more separation than connection. And um, mm-hmm. that, uh, I'm use I'm using your words to help move that committee to a new place and uh, to uh, you know to, to help oh, create belonging. You that's know. excellent. Yeah. That's really good. I mean, you know, it, it's funny because I've got so many questions that I want to ask you, but I'll pause on this for a moment because I think there's uh, there's something for, for us all to learn, really, in terms of the words that we use and the impact that they have, because that's that kind of very brief explanation that I've done on on why the words diversity, equity and inclusion really kind of um, exacerbate separation. And that doesn't mean that all the work that's been done in the past to get us to today is not valid because it's really, really useful and sets the foundation for what I think is the future. But I think um, there is something really important about the language that we use. And I've actually created a separate podcast that unpicks why I think the words diversity, equity and inclusion aren't the right ones. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But um, coming back to something that you said about the the research that you've done, I think um, it's, you know, your work is really reinforced by an article that I read a couple of weeks ago. And it was speaking about how one company, and it's a global company, um, they're giving salaries or offering salaries of $100,000 to new graduates to join them to become kind of like... um, uh, researchers and, and analysts in terms of um, a very specific niche in corporate finance. And before there was so much kind of desire for these jobs, but now the the kind of graduates just leaving university are looking for something else. And it, it appears that you can throw money, but if there's no value or no alignment with the role, they're just saying no. Well, You know, and I'm part of the generation that thought, in fact, my father's generation and and my generation also, that we were going to join a company and stay with them and and hit retire, become a principal, become a partner. I'm a former practicing CPA and I work for the company that is now known as Deloitte. And, um, you know, and you worked 80 hours a week and, uh, you know, you're, you saw, you did that with this path to partner. Mm. That was the thought. And that was going to take 25, 30 years, whatever it is. And that was going to be like, you know, your thing. And, um, I came to realize pretty quickly that that was not going to be my journey. And, uh, you know, there are studies now about, you know, young, um, you know, students who get master's degrees coming out of top, uh, you know, top Ivy League schools go to work for top consulting companies, and uh, they never learned that process of how to how to fail, how to how mm-hmm. to really what the what the uh, uh, you know the experimental method looked like for them personally in their own lives, and um, yeah, it's different. So I think that uh, yeah, they're, they're, we're in a different space in hiring, and and a lot of people make. That they, they, there's a lot of noise about generational differences, 
Mm. And the, the research that um, I've read from the people who did the research can actually conducted it. So I've had a chance to speak with them about mm -hmm. it is that they found that there are not that, that the generations really are not different in one really significant way. Their values are the same. Mm. The values are the same. What's different is um, that they want to do the work differently. They want to do it in different places. They want to, they, they want to get it done when it needs to be done. And they don't think that they're, that it's essential to be in an office, to be gathered, to go spend a lot of time in meetings. And, um, the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has proven mm. that they're probably right, that we can do a whole lot of work from other places and we can connect differently. And uh, it has, um, you know, made, uh, it, is, it has created an entire new industry of gig employees. It has created multiple industries that, uh, you know, whoever, you know, thought that you had to go online, you place an order for food and two hours later, it's at your front door. You know, um, and all of the things it's changed, the, you know, things have changed mm -hmm. across the globe as a result of that. And we've created new industries that, um, you know, people like it. They figure, well, I can, you know, I can drive a car. I can go pick up some groceries. I can do all those things. And uh, I can go and I live not too far from the ocean, from the beach. People say, well, I can do all that. And I can go to the beach for an hour in the, in the middle of the day, too. And I can walk on the sand and breathe some fresh air and then go about my business. Mm. So. Yeah, it's, it's different. It's real different. And it's a really powerful point, actually, for a whole number of different reasons. Uh, one of which actually is that, you know, sometimes people look at me and they think that my output is fairly pro prolific. And I'm like, it's not. All I'm doing is taking the hours that I would be spending grocery shopping or if we, if we want to get takeout, it's not that two hour trip. I just have to order on an app. And it comes and it's the five minutes of the ordering that it takes. And I think that frees up so much time. And one of the biggest, I mean, look, the pandemic was hard for so many of us. But one of the biggest gifts that I received from it is just the ability to be able to sit in a space and also not have travel time. So all of a sudden I've gained an extra 10 hours in my week just because there's no travel anymore. Right. Right. And, and, and then figuring out what to do with those 10 hours. And that's part of my, that's my coaching world mm. is uh, to jump over to that and say, all right, so let's take a look at what's really important here and make sure that you're working on the right things. Um, you know, you and I both used it to be prolific, to get stuff done. <laughs> Thesis, and, yeah. uh, you know, my, my journey, I've shared with you my journey and through it, uh, you know, I spent the first part of this year, um, fighting uh, or being go, going through the procedure for um, throat cancer, for tongue cancer. Mm. And I'm a speaker. Mm. And um, to be concerned that I might never speak again, but I was committed to saying, all right, I'm going to get done whatever I have to get done. That's not going to get in my way. And I'm just going to write if I have to type it or I have to do something else and I'll let other people do the, do the presenting. But uh, so in the midst of this, we learn, you know, we still, the stories of resilience still happen. And those are the things that we have to take, we have to do. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to learn how to use the time really effectively. I have a, and it's funny because, you know, you've got your book on results and I got the book and I said, oh no, she wrote the book on results. Now what? Because I have a model that I call the results function. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, some those two correlate and, uh, you know, in a couple of er couple of areas. And I, I say that results are a function of how we use time 
lead people and manage things. Those are the three resources that we have Absolutely. and how we use those, you know, individually in a team, in an organization that that ultimately what Matt, you know, is what matters and the, you know, time is always is the element that uh, is the common denominator. We only have, we all have the same 24 hours every day and um, the most effective people just use time a little bit better. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, interesting. I sent an email to someone today because they, you know, they're, they're seeking some of my time. And at the moment, it's a real challenge because I am writing my thesis. And, and for me, doing these podcasts is kind of like, it's just such a gift in my day because it gives me something to look forward to because I know I'm going to have a rich, deep, meaningful conversation with someone that's amazing like yourself. And, and so I sent them an email saying, look, if you know how I can buy time, please let me know. Because right now, that's the only thing that I want to throw my money at. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so that's an interesting uh, that that's a whole separate conversation. But you know, the way the way we uh, buy time is we figure out what to say no to. Yeah. And right. and at the moment I can't, yeah. I'm doing the things that really only I can do. And you'll feel like that about the, yeah. the thesis that you wrote and the research that you've done. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I'd love to know what were the, um, some of the key lessons that you discovered, because we've had a, a few conversations about, um, the thesis and the content of it. And for me, I just find every single one of those quite rich, but if you were to give kind of, um, a, a two to three minute summary of it, how would you describe it? Um, so first is what um, was the definition of um, authentic leadership is. And because we throw that we banter the word authentic authenticity around today, it's like, uh, you know, it's a baseball or a, you know, um, you need to end uh, or a football. And, and, you know, we have to recognize authenticity as it's used in authentic leadership comes from Kern's work on um on uh, esteem, his work on esteem and optimal durable self-esteem, which is what lives inside of us, regardless of what other people say or do, in that it's comprised of the three, the four components of authentic leadership that we use today, which is relational transparency, self-awareness, um, a, a positive moral perspective, and balanced processing, our ability to hear what other people have to say, take what we've got, run it through our machine and be able to look at both sides of it. Um, you know, that moral character that requires us to do the right thing in the face of adversity, um, you know, self-awareness, knowing our strengths, our weaknesses, all of those components uh, and recognize that our strengths can be weaknesses and that, uh, yeah, not to focus on our weaknesses because when we do that, the best we get is mediocre, right? Being and, and being open and sharing our weaknesses with others and our strengths with others too. You know, strengths-based leadership kind of idea. It's actually where it comes from is positive organizational scholarship. And, um, you know, relational transparency is the one that a lot of people struggle with sometimes. It's not about telling the world everything. It's about mm -hmm. having the appropriate disclosure with close others. It's about, you know, it's not about too much information. When you bundle that together, you get this, this person who exhibits hope, optimism, resilience, and efficacy. And it's that modeling of that behavior, that being, that way of being, that helps others to grow into leaders, to lead organizations that have sustainable results. And, um, you know, so it's a, 
it's a, we banter, we use a lot of those words, but yet when you pull it together into this, into this construct, which has been tested now as a theory, it's in its third iteration of growth. Um, the definition through all the research papers, the definition really hasn't changed. It's, mm. it's just, it's a way of being, it's a process of leadership. And um, we have to be clear what leadership is too. It's mm. not about, the person who has got the flag that gets the mountain, the top first, because if you get to the top of the mountain first and you look back, there's nobody behind you. You're just a hiker. Mm. You got to, you know, it's about encouraging the action that other people undertake. Right. So you put forth an action because it's action based. Right. And those people take that action mm. and it's an action they perceive as moral and appropriate and correct. And they do it. Mm. And, um, in that, that's really the essence of what um, this leadership, leadership in the commons is, right? Where le leadership takes place out in the world in the commons. So um, that's kind of the essence of this. And then my, my work was to see, all right, so does authentic leadership as, as defined affect organizational outcomes? And, um, you know, my, the study, this was the model. So I've crafted a model that will be applied to in, in larger, significant organizations growing going forward. And, you know, it was done in a significant organization, a small, in a, uh, um, in a more in a pilot. And uh, we got some inconsistent results. We got some areas that, in, that did show, uh, show uh, promise and uh, some other areas that I thought were interesting. I didn't think I'd find. Uh, which is always the case when you go in with a null hypothesis and you say, all right, let's just see what we get. And um, so it's expanding to do that, to show. And the goal is to show that um, that authentic leadership does affect um, the mindset of the people that you work with in an organization, especially as to um, those independent contractors who you really do have to connect head and heart. You have to help them see and believe that you truly have their best interests in, in, in mind. Mm -hmm. um, and these independent contractors, my, I'm, I'm weaving this web here, have been called, uh, you know, they're, um, they're knowledge workers working under contracts of choice, seeking boundaryless and protean careers. So protean for the Greek god Proteus for flexible, right? So they want this boundarylessness, both physically and in, and emotionally and psychologically, and they want this flexibility to to do this work when, where, and how, as long as they're doing the work. Mm. So uh, when you try to lead people in that space, those are the, that's kind of the whole movement of knowledge work today. Mm. And, and the interesting um, thing about that is that um, what you're describing is people who've got kind of an entrepreneurship mindset, but don't want to set up their own business. So they want all of the freedom and, and, and the benefits that come with entrepreneurship, but they want to work on someone else's project. Is that fair? So I would suggest that it's intrapreneurship. Mm, I like that. That they get to, that they get to be the entrepreneur using the models and systems and processes, the tools that are available uh, and it's a, when done properly, it's not a, um, an independent or dependent organizational model. It becomes an interdependent model where you're working together, where everybody's trying to achieve some common goals, where everyone wins, right? The individual wins, 
The organization wins. The customer wins. It's a value-driven, when done properly, it's a value-driven management process Mm -hmm. where you look at all the stakeholders, right? And that includes your competition, your customers, your suppliers, your vent, you know, all the interrelated parts and, uh, and society too. How does everybody win when you're all working together using those systems, tools, models, and processes to accomplish a common goal? Wow. Like I'm thinking, is there an organization out there that does something like that? Because what you're presenting to us is um, it's kind of like the cooperative model that we have in the UK. And I don't know if you have that in the US, but there's a couple of companies here. And I would say um, there's a supermarket called The Co-op and there's also John Lewis, which you may have heard of. It's a big department store um, here in uh, in the UK. And um, they they don't view their staff as, well, they are staff, but they're called partners as well. So they right. have some stake. They have some sense of an ownership. And, and yeah, I'm just wondering, if you took an organization that's essentially kind of profit-making and got them to consider all of these things that you've mentioned in terms of the, looking at their um, uh, competitors, but also exploring the impact on society. I think that, you know, that would be the kind of place I would want to go to work in. <laughs> right. You know, and that's, um, and I, I'm, I'm really not aware of one that does it all. There are a bunch that are trying. Mm-hmm. And uh, the hierarchy, you know, we, we talk about shared models and all and the different types of styles of leadership or, or and, I, and I don't want to confuse leadership and leadership. There are models of how organizations operate. Right. Yes. So you have shared. They call it shared leadership. Um, you know, they call collaborative leadership. Uh, and then but yet. And then we had the command and control style of leadership, which was kind of the foundation in the industrial age. Um, and there's there's some John Cotter did some work on and he's one of the leading authors on change management. And he's got his his eight step change process. And uh, he wrote a book, he wrote an article. It's in Harvard Business. I think it's in Harvard um, on Accelerate is the title of the article. And then he wrote a book around that, or wrote the book, published the article. I'm not sure what the sequence was. Um, and he says that to lead change in hierarchical organizations or to lead change in an organization, you need some form of hierarchy and that organizations need a hierarchy in order to really function and operate because the idea of there's no one leading means that there's no one leading. It means that yeah. you're all, you know, you're kind of like an amoeba and, uh, you know, you're making your way and, you know, you're just kind of, you have to have some people who, who kind of, who help, you know, set the direction of the sales mm. and you need people who, or it's like a body, right? There's a brain, there's a head, there's arms, there's hands, and they're all necessary. Some mm. are more equal than others. You know, in terms of the parts of your body, right? You can't, you know, you can thrive, you can live without some of them and some you cannot. So, but once you have the organization, then in order to really drive change, she says, you take an informal team of people who are embedded in the organization, let them come together and then craft this model of change, each understanding what they're their team does or their department does in the organization, how to be, how to best inculcate it and make that happen and bring back the challenges to lead this informal change management team. And there's a difference between leadership and management, although they're, the, mm-hmm. they're 
they're opposite sides of the same coin. They're different, right? We manage the actions of things. We manage the steps. We have to manage money. We, we manage resources, right? The things. And um, so we can't just say, well, management's not good and we can, we'll function just this, this shared leadership model. Somebody's actually got to manage the stuff too. Mm. And uh, that takes coordination. That's I mean, the legitimate purpose of an organization when they were first, first, first formed was um, to was the that shared uh, responsibility to pull people together and let their work to strengths and weaknesses so that mm. you could actually accomplish more. We got away with it. We got uh, we got away from that with um, profit first. And the problem we see in organizations around the world today, um, especially especially publicly traded organizations, is um, that leaders, and I said the, the CEO leader, right? they live and die by earnings per share. They live and die by the stock price. And uh, if you don't meet the quarterly projections, you're gone. So we don't even see the effect of good leadership many times. Mm. Because mm. there may be this undercurrent of really good stuff that they're doing, but if you don't hit the investor number, you're out. And now we're seeing a move very much towards sustainable organizations. We're seeing a movement toward people who truly care about social issues and other other things. And um, I think that uh, that is a generational, that's an outcome of, mm -hmm. some, of the generational differences in that they, there's a more of a concern for how are we leaving the world today? And are we gonna make the world a better, a better place? Um, and when you get that embedded, when you get that conscious leadership embedded and uh, you look at value driven management, uh, which was written by Bill Koch, was a uh, was a, you know, uh, and um, and my, and actually the dean of the college I graduated, I got my master's degree from. He wrote the wrote the book and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, Randy Pullman. And, um, you know, when you look at that, you say, All right, if we do these things. We're going to have better companies. Mm. Um, so I, and, have, I was going to ask you, so it's a little bit of a side note. And um, so following on the, from the conversation that, that John Berghoff and I had on Alexis Dean's podcast, which uh, will be, um, uh, there'll be a note in the show notes for the link to that. I'm kind of thinking, actually, this Center for Belonging and Understanding is just something that is way beyond any project that I've ever worked on before in terms of what it could achieve. And so I'm looking to have conversations with with experts about lots of different things. And the way that you're describing um, the leadership model, I would love to have a separate uh, conversation with you, which we record as a podcast and upload about the leadership model that could be used for the Center of Belonging and Understanding. Sure, I would love to. We, we'll, we'll, if you if you want to, we'll draw it on a map. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> we'll I just think it. there's there's so much here for people to to really pay attention to in terms of how they structure their own organizations or how they kind of like just put a pause and then pull back from some of the things that they may not like about the the leadership structure that they've either created or the one that they have influence over. And I think that conversation that we have would be a wonderful gift for me and for the center, but also for anyone else that's listening in too. I would, I would love to do that. Brilliant. Know, anytime Thank we, anytime we can share. Right? Excellent. So I would, I would love to do that. You know, it's, um, 
But when we talk about that leadership itself, you know, leadership is important because true leaders lead, they don't lead from the, they can lead for, as part of the group or they can lead from outside the group, right? You can give mm-hmm. the group the guidance and the direction, the tools that they need to get it done and then set the standards and then be there to, to, to observe, to delegate and observe, monitor, and um, then coach, mm. right? Mm. Uh, and then go do the stuff that you have to do because a leader, um, I've got, a, a, I've got a, a, a course coming out pretty soon where I describe the leader as the linchpin, right? Mm-hmm. The linchpin is the thing that holds the wheel onto the cart, yep. right? And um, the leader's job is to hold the wheels on. Mm. You know, uh, and, and and be the visionary, and it's the same time. So it is at the same time ensure that the that the organization is doing the things that it was built to do, mm-hmm. um, so that you get those outcomes. And um, you know, we see we're seeing organizations morph into things that we never would have expected. You know, a guy selling used books from his garage is going to space. Uh, you know, I mean, Bezos for those who don't yeah, know. Right. I, yeah. I mean, who would have, uh, you know, I mean, who would have, who would have thought that? Yeah. This guy's selling books from his garage, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, now he's, he's going into space and, you know, you got people that are just, um, you know, so you got some pretty, yeah, the yeah. world is, I think the idea of sustainability has mm-hmm. taken hold, which has changed that that model. And I think it's starting to come into effect. You know, I was saying earlier that leader, we don't get to see the effect of leadership. I think that with um, the new model, we might. We might start to see leaders be in a position long enough because organizations are starting to adopt the social model too mm-hmm. and recognize that they also you cannot give up. I heard somebody say, and I don't know if it, we were on it or so. Yeah, I think we might have been on some. So we, you, you can't give up the profit purpose of an organization mm-hmm. because the true reason that organizations come together is to make a profit. Even nonprofits have to make a profit. Absolutely. Because if they don't, they can't exist. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the idea that you can go to a fundraiser and have a golf tournament or, or bring in a top speaker and that's enough to fund all organizations have to operate differently today in this, but even nonprofits, we have to make a profit. It's just how we do it. Mm-hmm. Right. What's the cause. That's the greater cause behind it. The mm-hmm. yin and, you know, Collins and Porath wrote a, um, an article. I think again, also I think was published in Harvard uh, on corporate vision and the yin and yang of the values and the vision and how they have to interconnect to drive the organization, to be that vision um and you and and i think as as importantly um you know drucker says that the mission statement's got to fit on a t-shirt and i think people are much more yeah people are more discerning now as well right so if they can't see the vision statement and the values then the the customer's kind of dollar or pound is so valuable now and there are so many alternatives that they can go somewhere else yes you know, and that I think is really good for business because it means that businesses have to become much more clear about their value proposition, not just in terms of the product that they're offering, but also in terms of their ethics. Right. Absolutely. And I think people vote with their money mm-hmm. in that regard. And, um, you know, when you, and it's becoming more and more and more important to employees 
and to and to the to the buyer, to the purchasers, to the consumer, that they are involved in supporting and connected to um, organizations that have an impact that uh, are doing good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the quality of the food that is produced, the way it's produced, the sustainability, the ethics, uh, all those come into play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's incumbent upon leadership at the highest level. And that that actually brought the call, take full circle, brought the call for authentic leadership. It away from charismatic leadership, which is, you know, that you know, somebody builds great connection on the surface um, to deep, authentic leadership is we need people to do the right things. And, um, you know, that came about from uh, you know, a number of crashes in the 2000s. We had the dot-com bubble, Enron, Arthur Anderson. Um, then we came through the next series of the financial crisis. We go back further to the savings loan crisis. Um, then this most, you know, the, the, all, all of these other things that call for leadership is, um, you know, across the globe mm. is, uh, are you doing the right thing? Mm. First and foremost, I think that's what people look for in a leader. Now, are you doing the right? Can I trust them? You yeah. Know, trust is such a big thing. And I think the thing is, them. is that I, I, I hypothesize that, that as humans, we've learned to read people even through a picture. So now we're having this co- this conversation over Zoom and we're going to take the audio off and turn that into a podcast. But the fact that I can see you and I can connect with you through this screen and still have a view as to whether I trust you or not is really, really impactful, isn't it? Like- yeah, absolutely. You know, we know that um, you know, the actual spoken word or the typed word, right? Text messages are the best way to miscommunicate. Mm. Um, you know, we know that that it represents such a small piece of communication. And when you add the, 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 the spoken word, you add tonality. Then on top of that, you add the body language, right? The, the mm. eyes, the mouth, the, sm- the you know, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of research around trust and eyes and the way eyes crinkle at the corner and how people mm-hmm. can just discern mm-hmm. um, trustworthiness by that. And um, yeah, it's a, it's important. And, um, mm-hmm. We have to recognize that, that that plays a key role in, in building relationships is so I know I can trust you. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's and, funny because the other day I was speaking to um uh, a bunch of people about um, a proposal that I put together and just kind of like explaining what I'd done it. And I was speaking about the team that I had structured for this proposal to do some work in the, in what I'm going to say it like this, in what is currently known as the diversity, equity and inclusion space. And, um, and for me, the number one thing was about trust. It wasn't about skill set. It wasn't about capacity or about their kind of um, signing up for the work um, but it was, do I trust individuals and will other people in the team trust them? Because if the, if that piece is missing, it, honestly, like I'm at this stage of my life where I don't have the time, space or energy to be able to, to take someone on a journey where other people can trust them. And right. if that bit works, then I that's where I think we get good, really, really good team members because you yeah. can you can. Um, delegate a project or give them some sense of responsibility and you just know that whatever decision they make will be the right one. And if it's not, then there'll be a reason for it. And so it is the right one, right? 
Yeah. And you know, that's, that's such a key piece of, of organizational operation of leadership is you got to set up a culture that allows failure too, mm-hmm. and without judgment mm-hmm. that you allow failure. And, uh, you know, the great story and it's, um, it, it's, maybe it's, maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. Um, I won't judge where the source, but the source comes from, uh, you know, a guy in a, he's running an investment house and he makes a, he makes a mistake. It's a 10 million, it cost them $10 million. And he says, uh, so, you know, in the short version, so I guess I'm getting fired. He says, I just invested $10 million in you. Go out and just don't do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, uh, there's a, a, a power, there's a utility company here in my area that I've, I've had conversations with them at the highest level. And I've talked to them about how they how they operate their organization, and they're very structured because they're a regulated utility. They have lots of divisions. They have a nuclear power division, so you know lots of responsibility there. Um, they're in solar, so they're doing you know cutting edge stuff there. And uh, he said, but our whole decision model really is based around risk. Mm. We trust the person enough that we give them the level of risk for their role. And uh, the only person who can make a life or death decision is the CEO. Mm. But everybody else is charged with whatever amount of responsibility is appropriate for their division. So mm. they give, they trust people to make the right decision. They allow them, they, they allow failure to happen as long as that failure doesn't kill people. Mm. You know? I think that's a really, really good model. You know, because it demonstrates that there is also some kind of um, uh, leadership. You know, the, the buck doesn't have to lie with the person that's making the decision, right? right? Yeah, right. And that actually, in itself, is empowering as well. You know? Right, right. Mm-hmm. You know, the the leader is ultimately responsible. But I think what happens in some organizations, and this is a, a mantra of mine, is you know, you talk about giving people a role. They take whatever the role is. You call them a leader, you call them a manager, whatever. You put them in the role, and then you give them responsibility. Hmm. Right? Here's what you're responsible for. You have to give them authority, and you have to give them resources. And you have to put them in the role and give them the tools and then let them do their job. By establishing, you know, this this is part of, um, you know, this um, management, you know, um, you're managing by outcomes, right? Mm. You design the role, you talk about what the outcomes need to be, and then you put the resources in place and allow them to do that. And then you monitor and check, you delegate, monitor and check and then uh, let them know. I believe in you. I'm here for you. I'm right here by your side. Go do what you have to do. And if you don't do that, then you're not, then, you know, you're, you might as well do the job, right? Because all you're doing is you're, it's kind of, you're extending yourself. And um, that's a key piece to leadership in those organizations today is Mm -hmm. giving people that uh, the authority, give them the responsibility, give them the resources, Mm -hmm. give them what it takes to do the job. Yeah. And it's interesting because as you're describing it, I'm thinking about, my kids doing their high school exams, their GCSE exams. And I'll tell you why in a second, because it's like, well, obviously, you know, I want them to succeed in their exam results. And so what are the things that I've got to put in place to give them the best fighting chance in order to be able to do it? And I mention this because some people will be listening and thinking, oh, you know, I don't know how to do it. And I'm like, well, actually, if you yourself have ever sat an exam 
or if you have a child who is sat an exam, then you have that skill set already. You right. just really need to extrapolate it and put it into the leadership role that you're in. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, like you know, we learn. We leadership is um, and and actually, it's part of my study, and it's part of the definition of authentic leadership is that critical life events mm. affect our those those four components of self-awareness we bring our life to the table whatever our life experience is it's driven by our positive capabilities our moral capacity together that's how we live in life right it's our experience whatever we have it's kind of like the uh, idea of telling my two and a half year old grandson don't touch the stove don't touch the stove it's hot if he doesn't have a frame of reference of hot, doesn't matter. It's just don't touch the stove. Well, children are curious. Mm -hmm. But once they have the frame of reference and once we can help impart that, right, then we can help them understand what hot is without them having to get burned. They don't have to burn their hand to learn that. We can give them that skill set, teach them based on our experience. Smart people learn from their mistakes. Wise people learn from the mistakes of others. And you don't have to make the mistake. You do not have to, you know, there are things you don't have to do to learn that, hey, this is a really bad outcome. Um, and, it's funny. Yeah, we can teach the good too. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I, I'm at the moment, you know, I'm, I'm doing all of this work for my thesis and things. And so I'm having no breaks. And I mentioned that because when people are sharing photos of them kind of, you know, going for walks on the beach or going to some really amazing places and things, I reply to them and thank them and say, I'm living my life vicariously through your break. And I think what you're describing really is that we, because I looked up the definition of vicariously and it just got me so excited because <laughs> when I read books and when I'm looking at the research, actually I can benefit vicariously i.e. through the experience that I receive by reading this and the benefit that they've given in sharing and documenting that stuff. So really what you're describing is when we see other people leading, regardless of the judgment that we may put on it, whether they're doing a good job or a bad job or we're indifferent, there still are lessons in there for us to learn. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, there is, and, and we, we can observe and, you know, we have this built-in authenticity meter, too, when we go back to that idea of authentic leadership, because you mm -hmm. said that earlier, you started to I think, get there, and I will, um, is that, yeah, we observe from the outside, and we see people good, bad, we, we judge, it's good or bad, it's not what we want to do, but we can learn from it, we can observe it, um, you know, we can take away from that. We have a built-in authenticity meter. We know inauthentic when we see it. Mm -hmm. And... We can we can capture that. We don't always learn authentic very well. We learn inauthentic pretty easily, mm. you know. Um, but yeah, we learn from others. We learn from observing. That vicarious learning uh, is really important, and it's also important, however, that we do have our own critical life events. Right? If we were going to train somebody how to be a leader, and we took them from a little baby egg. And we hatched the egg and then we knew what their role was going to look like. And we instilled all of the experiences along the way in a laboratory. We could turn out the perfect person, right? Or not, I don't want to say not the perfect person, but the person who had the perfect journey of becoming a leader. 
Mm -hmm. right? Instilling all the life experiences at just the right place that they would come out that way. But yet that's not the reality of life. The reality of life is it's a lived experience. Absolutely. So we have to go live life as an experience, get the stuff from it, and then figure out what we do along the way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, Bill George, who uh, wrote the book authentic leadership and true north their research was a hundred on a based on 125 leadership leaders or people who are in leadership roles from like ages 20 and, and under to to retirement age and all the backgrounds and all the different industries you know about and and what they really uncovered it was really about their journeys really mm -hmm. that made the biggest difference and how they got to where they are and sometimes we don't have to physically observe we don't have to experience them we get them through um th we get them through crucibles right through our crucible experiences the yet we can learn from others that we hold in high esteem from watching somebody in a video too we mm -hmm. can be motivated and moved by people who we don't necessarily connect to you know brandon richard is one of your you know one of your mentors and um you know i i've you know read his work watched and i find you know so it's a different we have different experiences mm. it doesn't mean that i don't come away um move touched moved and inspired by what he does and maybe even more so and that's the interesting thing because it's all about what at what point do you encounter the the work you know and it could be for for example, for for anyone who's literally just finding Brendan or somebody else's work right now, they may just ignore it, right? Right. But somebody else, for them, it could save their life. Right. You know. Yeah. And I think that's really important because you know, like the the community that we connected through is the exchange approach, and I first came across appreciative inquiry maybe twelve thirteen years ago when I was doing my masters in applied positive psychology, and I ordered a book and it came and it looked like a doorstop and I thought I haven't got the time or space for this right now, <laughs> and yet here I am all those years later, you know, actually really leaning into that work. So I think there is something about the. Um, the teacher will come when the student's ready. Yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And and it's interesting because my my introduction to them was through my work in in uh, the company, you know, the, the national company that uh, you know, my real estate license is with, and what I could do that use in leadership and have, facilitate better, mm. how to better facilitate. And uh, yet I've been so connected to the other stuff that they do that that's a greater connection in that in that leadership space and all of the the other things that we uh, that uh, that uh, they stand for mm. that has had such a great impact on the way that um, you know I do things. I have a, a town hall coming up that um, I proposed as part of my role in our diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, and we use that model of having some people tell their life story using what I've got in mind. Say, so we need to hear about the life story so that everybody can understand and see what what do you take away from that? What part of that do you see your story in? Mm. And this and, is for me is such a significant thing because when I look at the Center for Belonging and Understanding, it's very different. I mean, look, when this goes out, when, you know, listener, when you're listening to this, it could be very different from what I'm about to present. But my model is academic research, corporate and individual training, and also a documentation of the lived experience of a full range of people. 
because I think if we really are sincere about wanting to cultivate belonging and understanding, we gain it for ourselves and others by listening to stories. And so this kind of podcast originally just started out really like a little pet project. But I think in some ways it's turning into quite a significant element of that Centre for Belonging and Understanding. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people look at me and they say, what do you know about that stuff? (laughs) And I have a long life journey and, you know, I have my own... uh, you know, my own individual convictions, you know, you and I, who would thought, who would have thought that the two of us would be connecting here on this Zoom call, you know, the way we are, it, you know, at any point in time, you know, uh, yet it's, it's fascinating that here we sit in this, in this space. And, you know, I think one of the things that I took away from diver- my diversity training early on with the folks at Franklin Covey, when it, you know, and the, the material that they used is, um, you know, they people said that New York was the melting pot, right? And it always gave me this this picture of it was like pea soup, and I love pea soup, but that's not the goal, right? The goal is more like um, a fruit salad mm. that you know all the components come together to create something really colorful and really tasty and really cool, and yet they each have their own. They each stand out in their own way. And, um, and I think that that when we come to that place where we uh, not just accept, where mm-hmm. we celebrate differences, mm-hmm. we recognize them, and yet we can all have a common conversation, um, that becomes really important. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Because I think, I, I honestly, I think the thing that kind of really triggered me into focusing in on this work was the realization that everyone like they we we were looking for connection through points of difference and i don't like that you know and i'm not saying don't respect the difference because absolutely i think we need to acknowledge how people are different from us but when you connect with somebody through a point of similarity or through an experience or just through sharing a tiny um piece of your story what I've realized is that that kind of connection is something that lasts with you for the rest of your life. And so I I look back and I think of people whose stories they've told me sitting at a bus stop or in a coffee shop. I mean, and I'm talking about strangers. I can remember what they look like. I have no idea of their name, but I remember the story and I remember the deep connection that I felt with that individual. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we all have a, and we'll save our story for another conversation, mm-hmm. uh, but I do want to give you a thought to, uh, to, and for, and for the listeners to, to think about. And um, I have one now sitting on my bookshelf. I ordered a plastic version of this, but think about a potato. You get a bag of potatoes, right? If mm-hmm. you look at each potato, what do you see? Potatoes. Right. You see potatoes. Right? But if I take a bag of potatoes and I give them to each to an individual student in a room and I have them look at the potato, you see the nicks, the scars, the dings, the dents, the sprouts. You see all the, the right. There's like this life experience in this potato. They name their potato. They tell me that we, they tell the group the story about the potato, their, the potato's journey. Right. And then I take the potatoes all back. I put them in a bag and I dump them back out. Without fail, 100% of the time, everybody finds their potato. Wow. So we know that, like you said, we look at a, we see a bag of potatoes, they're potatoes, right? All potatoes are potatoes. 
on the inside. Mm. On the outside, all potatoes have their own journey. Mm. And people are like those potatoes. And, you know, now today you got purple potatoes and red potatoes and blue potatoes and all the designer potatoes, um, you know, but they're still all potatoes. And we have to recognize that that's what uh, that what that's what makes the world kind of a better place. And when we focus on our differences, that creates isolation, that creates mm. silos, and it actually creates the the the, the challenge mm. trying to overcome. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, we could have a million different conversations about so many different yep. things and, yes. and, and I hope that we will, and that we will document all of them and put them into this kind of like depository of amazing conversations for people to listen to in the future. Yes. Um, I have a couple of questions sure. um, before we close up. One yep. is, um, what are you listening to reading and watching at the moment? And especially like, what are you reading now? Your thesis is done. <laughs> So, you, you know, you would you would think that I would say, all right, I'm done. And uh, now I don't have to read any other other really important, cool stuff. But um, I just yesterday, I actually picked up um, Daniel Siegel's work on the developing mind. And let's see, I've got Terry's book on authentic leadership. I went back. I found that. I'm rereading that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, um, I got Danny. I have Danny's book. So I'm reading Dr. Danny's book um, and, uh, you know, on, on conscious leadership. And, and, um, and I'm, I'm still and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm actually doing something for myself that I've not done is I'm reading some, some religious some spiritual texts, too. Because mm -hmm. I hadn't done that in a while. And uh, you know, so you'd think that I could go read a novel, and um, I, I, my, my head isn't in that space. Um, I went back. I took a look at Viktor Frankl too, mm. and Search for Meaning. And uh, you know, I tried to distill the essence of that, and I still think the essence is about choice. Mm. You know, we have a choice in in how we respond to our the experiences we have in life. Mm. Um, and I joined a, a book club, so I get five new books a, like a, a quarter, and uh, I'm trying to keep up with them because they read faster than me. I try to digest every word in, in the <laughs> book. And um, I, I read um, uh, there's um, Noise, which oh, is yes. Kahneman's. It Kahneman uh, is one of his their his latest books. And, you know, he wrote Think Fast and Slow, mm. right? And this one is about the noise in all of the stuff. And uh, I thought that was kind of a cool, you know, kind of an interesting, uh, it was a great book. It actually formed the foundation of my, of my study in that I made it, I said, all right, I'm not going to do a fancy statistical analysis because um, the only time that pure statistical analysis work is when it comes to math. Mm. Social sciences, statistical analysis don't really tell us much, but a simple study helps us really take a look at that. So it helped inform that for me. And then I actually read the rest of the book. Mm. And um, so I've got a whole slew of, uh, you know, I keep you keep saying that you bought another book. Um, I think I'm addicted. Amazon is here like every day and, and you know, it's like they're stacking up. 
Yeah, I know, I know. And and I, I mean, I, actually, I've had to stop. I'm now making a list of things to buy that I'm not allowed to buy until I've actually finished. So, yeah. But yeah, you yeah. mentioned your list, you're reading um, and you've gone back to some spiritual books. What are you reading at the moment there? So um, for me, um, you know, and, and I don't make any, you know, there's no no question that my faith is that I'm, you know, is that I'm uh, I'm Jewish. So I have gone back and I am actually digging into the um, the original five books, what we call the Torah. And mm-hmm. I study that, you know, I've, I'm, I've, I'm observant. I go to services regularly. I do. I'm engaged. Uh, but I'm reading it at a different level now mm-hmm. because I don't have to water ski it on a regular. I can pick and choose pieces. So, um, you know, and then I read some writings of the sages and I try to uncover um, you know, really, uh, really interesting stuff that we might not otherwise even talk or think about. And um, mm-hmm. one other, another uh, book that we refer to often, it's called Pirkei Vote, and it's Ethics of the Fathers. And mm-hmm. it's what are the, what are the ethical foundations of humanity? Mm-hmm. You know, these, mm-hmm. these writings predate most of the work that, I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, some of the books that we talk about that are old, you know, Peter Drucker's work is old, right? It was written in the sixties or somebody else's work or Rogers in the third. Yeah. We talk, I mean, I'm reading stuff now that's worth that. It's, you know, I'm reading stuff that's 3,500 years old yeah. and yet, and gleaning the stories to take away mm. um, that, that apply to my life in as my lived experience today mm. um, to help me um, get, stay, you know, get and stay more grounded, mm. um, you know, in, I love that because, and and I'm really, really pleased that I asked you because I think that there is um, lessons and information in everyone's tradition that we can benefit from. So I'm really, really pleased because I I want to read some of these things if they're accessible in English. And uh, it's a bit of an aside, but I remember when I was 13, I made an attempt um, and and I'm kind of now feeling very uncomfortable sharing this with you because I probably didn't do anything about it but I made an attempt to read the Torah the Bible and the Quran just to kind of think about you know what are the stories within there and what are the similarities and the differences and just to unpick some of that work and and perhaps I'm sharing this with you because it's a reminder for me that once I do finish my thesis and I have some space that that would be a good place to go back to and particularly because I'm involved in doing some what do they call it um um, textual analysis work within Abrahamic faiths in mediation. So that sounds really fancy, but I'm the one that's there to learn rather than the one there to lead or do anything. So, um, you know, it, and I and I applaud you for that because when we uh, when we do, we go back and we truly understand. Uh, and and I will make the statement without reserve that those writings are the foundation of of a, of a well-lived society, mm. that those are the rules of the road. Those are the rules that, you know, the general rules now, you know, in the Torah, there are 613 commandments. There's a lot, mm. you know, um, the top 10, most people know they're pretty familiar with. And, uh, but they're the rules of the road of what you do and how you do things and how you treat your neighbor. And, you know, mm. um, even to something I noticed yesterday, as simple or Saturday, uh, when it is uh, so when you build a house, the rule says that you build a parapet around the wall, around the roof. Mm. Well, the purpose is so that somebody doesn't fall off and get hurt. 
or something else would drop off the roof. So it's just how do we what's the how do we live in the world as good human beings? And it's not about you know yeah there's so you know there's a difference in how we observe things, but it, but just the human part of being right the the being part of a human being is how do we be that person in the best way that we can in this world that recognizes that we have different people there are differences you know all potatoes are potatoes mm. you know. Uh, so, and I, and I applaud you for that. I would also assert that, that waiting is probably, you know, there's this whole when then yeah, at the that happens just... in life, when <laughs> this, then that you yeah. could allocate 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day to read something. And it would just mm -hmm. clear your head a little bit and give you a break. I had to do that on my work. I mean, it took, I had to finally take give myself those built-in breaks. And some of those breaks were, I'm just going to do something a little different and take my head in a different direction. So mm. that's um, a really, really good um, uh, suggestion. Uh, because this morning when I woke up, when I had my cup of coffee, I was thinking I'm going to do something completely unrelated. So I rewatched an episode of Ted Lasso because I just found it so um, right. uplifting and entertaining. But what you're saying to me is just find 15 minutes a day and read the things that, you're saying you'll do in the future and start now. So, so thank you for that. I was going to ask you what advice do you have for me? And I'm going to take that as one of the pieces, but I Absolutely. also, what advice do you have for me given, you know, you know, some of the ambition and the things that I'm trying to do. So um, first and foremost, and there's something that um, my chair, my dissertation chair said to me, he said, um, the purpose of the dissertation is to craft the model. It's mm -hmm. to to do the is to 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 do the research is to show you know how. He said you don't change the world through your dissertation. <laughs> you change the world after you have those three letters mm -hmm. penned to your name, and after the work is done and the follow up work that you do. So find us you because I I've been following you on Facebook and I've got another book and I'm reading this that I'm going to incorporate. At some point you have to. You got to eat it a date mm. because it'll never stop. I could have, I could still be writing. I mm. could still be researching and reading and writing. And the day I, the, the day I, my, my final approval was in mm. an article came out that I, I could have incorporated. And I said, okay, well, I'm no, I'm no longer the leading expert because now there's a new article. Now I got to go write something else and incorporate it. You could go on forever. You have to find a stopping point and say, here's my stopping point. Because mm. now I'm going to be, I'm going to get it done, you know, uh, and I would, and I would recognize that the role of what you're doing today in the work is a thimble full of sand in the entire ocean of the world. And your thimble is that work. And then what comes out of that, right? Then all of the sands on the ocean become your playground. Mm. Um, but find that thimble to stay that to stay the course to be focused, so that you you get that done. And then the work that you're doing for the center for belonging, um, you know, I think that uh, you know the uh, company that I'm that I work with, and um, you know, you can find my bio and the company name is in there. Um, <clears throat> and they uh, they changed the title of the DEI committee. They're in the process of changing it. And uh, they've added belongingness to the word yeah. over to end uh, because they've come to realize, and maybe it's part of the conversations that you and I have had, uh, is that it's really, that's what 
people are trying to create. So I think that you, there's you're such a you're such an amazing soul. I love talking to you and connecting with you. Um, I feel so so truly blessed that you our paths have crossed and that we've connected the way we have. Um, and um, yeah, I think that the work you're doing is really important. It's important work, not just because the world is in a terrible state today. The world's been in a state for 5,000 years. I mean, family of origin, you know, family of origin takes hold. And, uh, you know, we, mm. we can go back to family of origin, right? Um, yet we're, the world's in a real state. It's in a real struggle. I mean, we look at what's happening everywhere. And it's really critical that we enable people to take a hard look at um, not the differences, mm. at the similarities, and be and celebrate the differences, recognizing that there are differences in people that um, good, bad or indifferent, however we look at it, you know, that we we uh, I, I hate the word implicit bias. I hate some of the other things that are being said. And it's probably true, but I don't like it. And maybe because, it, you know, I don't know. I won't judge myself on that one. I just don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there is a, that, that um, you know, we are there's a hardwired bias um in animals certainly that's why lions and tigers are lions and tigers and we don't have some other mm-hmm. variety of those right there's a hardwired bias and we are wired to um to find people that quote look like us mm-hmm. right similar people that's why we're hard wired it's not a it's not a that's not a training thing Yet people are also not hardwired to hate. Mm. People are not hardwired to, to judge. Stereotypes are really important in the brain because it helps the brain make sense of the world. It's a file cabinet of how do we sort information because if we every experience was lived anew, completely new, we would never be able to make decisions and sort stuff out. We make decisions based upon our experiences and how we sort them. What I think we've got to do in something that you're doing that's so important is be able to go back into that file cabinet and maybe resort some of the files and take a different look at how we use them, right? And maybe put them in different file folders so that we can see the world differently um, and see each other differently for the human being, right? Mm -hmm. As, as we are to be human with each other, to treat each other that, uh, that with, with that respect, understanding, compassion, love, all the, the important stuff. Um, and it's incumbent upon all of us, you know, not to follow the golden rule, but to follow the platinum rule, right? Right. Not do unto others mm. as you would have them do unto you. Do unto others as they would want, you know, how do they want to be treated? You know, treat people the way they want to be treated. Follow that rule. You know, treat people the way they want to be treated. Get to see who they really are. And um, I think that's where your work is so important is because it does create that, you know, the the idea of of that we are all part, we are human being. We all belong to that human race and being be human, right? That that's a that's a lived experience, right? Be the people that we're supposed to be. So, um, you know, the advice that if you if I was going to give you advice, I think it would be take time for yourself every day. Mm-hmm. It would be to um, find a stopping point, get clear in your you know get to get refocus get focused on the thimble, 
because uh, it's one those it's when you can uh, you can append those three letters to your name that um, you can make the make a difference in the world. You know, I'll tell a story, and I'll tell, I'll kind of put try to land the plane on this one. Um, you know, when you're in your doctoral journey, especially as it drags on, I thought I'd be done in three years and it, it took 10. Um, and I was going to give up. And there's a book that, uh, and I don't remember the name of the book, but it's the, the, the Rebbe of, this, of, the, of the, the faith that I belong to. It's no longer around, passed away in 94. But he wrote books. He penned, he penned letters, responses to people. And somebody, somebody wrote him a letter. He says, I think I'm going to quit my, my academic education of studying, and um, I want to go teach Jewish students. I want to teach them, them Torah learning. So the response was, no, go back to school and get those three letters after your name because you can have a greater impact on the world mm-hmm. than just stopping, giving up, and then teaching. And it kept me going more than once when I thought I was facing all adversity. And I said, no, I have more to do. And I would say that to you. It's time for you to do, you know, you have more to do. Mm. And I'm Gosh. looking forward to every, I'm looking forward to all the, watching the whole journey, being part of the journey. Mm, absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, I, Dr. Michael, honestly, like you've just, I don't know, I'm going to go, when next time I go to the store, I'm going to buy a thimble. And I'm going to put it right in front of this screen. And it's going to act as the reminder for what you said about the thimble of sand. So, and that'll be something that I carry with me for the rest of my life. So thank you just for that thing there. Actually, do you know what I might even do? Whenever I do an in-person event, I'm going to buy tons of thimbles and give everyone a thimble. <laughs> ah, how beautiful. Wow. <laughs> I love that. Because there's a very powerful, powerful story that you shared. Now, I would like to give everyone the opportunity to connect with you. So if they want to find out more about your work or um, want to message you, what is the best way for them to be able to do that? So um, certainly Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, You know, I'm on LinkedIn as M.B. Horowitz, Michael B. Horowitz, uh, H-O-R-W-I-T-Z. Facebook, I think I'm M.B. Horowitz 1. Um, my uh, website's being rebuilt because it was very insufficient. It's uh, mhorowitz.com. And, um, or they can email me at mike at mhorowitz.com. And I would love to connect and respond and um, communicate and, you know, whatever. I'm always, I always love to meet new people. Thank you. And I encourage everyone that's listening and really wants to learn a little bit more about um, leadership and the work that Dr. Michael has done and is going to continue to do. Please go and find him on LinkedIn or on Facebook as well. And uh, and do take advantage because, Michael, you are such a gift in my life. Like we have conversations that always blow my mind and I'm left unpacking what is in my mind for at least a week. So this has been a huge gift and I really look forward to the next time we speak. Saida, thank you so much. And um, I absolutely look forward to that. And I hope that we connect again very, very soon. If you enjoyed this episode of With Sayada. I'd appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. 
It helps other people find out about the podcast and the work of the Centre for Belonging and Understanding.